Such a beautiful song. Just a beautiful, beautiful song. And not only do we close our eyes and feel God's love, we open our eyes and look into his book, and we understand why he loves us. We understand why he came. We understand why he died. We're so thankful to have each of you with us. We do have guests today, and we're so glad you could be with us today. As Tanner said in his prayer, we want to give our all to the worship of God and do our best to do what God wants us to do. This morning, I want to focus on two words, words you and I say all the time. And it's simply, why me? And it works in a lot of scenarios. You got a busy day, all planned. You've got to go here, there, here, there, and there, and here. And you get in your car, and the first thing is your car won't start. Why me? You go to work tomorrow, and the boss says, I need somebody to work this Saturday. You already got your Saturday planned out, and he looks right at you, and you say, why me? You take your dog to the vet, just a simple little checkup. And the vet calls you and says, we've seen some things. We want to run some tests. And you say, well, how much is this going to cost? And the vet says, oh, around $1,000. And you say, why me? You go to your mailbox, and there's a letter from the IRS. Well, this isn't tax season. And you open it up, and you have been chosen to be audited. And you say, why me? We say that all the time, and whenever we say it, it's always in the negative. You don't get a phone call from an attorney and said, you had some uncles you didn't even know about who left you a million dollars. You don't say, why me? No, you don't say it that way. It's always something that's terrible, bad, that seems to happen. Why me could be the description of the life of the Apostle Paul. We can look through his life and see how he was chased, imprisoned, abused, and treated like the scum of the earth. And very easily the apostle could say, why me? We could spend our morning talking about the book of Job. And what a great description of the book of Job. Why me to have all this calamity in my life? But this morning we're going to look at another book. I think that this little phrase defines, and that is the book of Esther. If you got your Bibles, let's get over there. Esther is one of those books that's kind of hard to find, so find Psalms. It's everywhere in the Old Testament. Psalms covers half the Old Testament. Right in front of Psalms is Job. Right in front of Job is a little book of Esther. And Esther is a great, great book. And as we walk through this this morning, we're going to see somebody that very easily could have said, Why me? And will help us as we think about our journey and some things that we have to do together. Let's talk a little bit about the book of Esther to begin with. It is interesting historically. It's interesting biblically. <coughs> Excuse me. Biblically, it's interesting because God's name does not even appear in the book of Esther. And what's interesting about the book of Esther is that God never speaks in the book of Esther. You'll find no prophets, no priests, no preachers in the book of Esther. What's interesting is that Jesus Christ never referred to the book of Esther. What's interesting is the apostles never quoted the book of Esther. When you read Hebrews chapter 11, Esther's not listed there. And, and this has caused some people in the past to question it. 
the great reformer Martin Luther, he had problems with the book of Esther because he thought, well, God's not in this book. It shouldn't be in our Bibles. But as we look this morning, you're going to see God's fingers on almost every single page in this book. Now, where it fits historically, and that's kind of important for us to get in our minds, we remember that the nation of Judah had gone into Babylonian captivity. God had sent prophet after prophet like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel, and the people would not listen to them. And so God rose up the Babylonians. And about the year 586, the Babylonians came into Jerusalem, sacked the city, took away the best people over to Babylon. That's how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get over to Babylon. That's how Daniel gets over to Babylon. For 70 years, they're in the land of Babylon. As Daniel chapter 5 says, that that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean or Babylonian king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom about the age of 62. This was a coalition between the, the Medes and the Persians. And the Persians take over. And so Cyrus the Mede allowed the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. And this is where the book of Ezra and Nehemiah talk about. They go back and build their homes. They go back and they build the temple. Then they go back and build the walls around the city there. The book of Esther takes place about the year 580 B.C. And we'll talk a little bit more about where this takes place, but that's the time period. It's late in our Old Testament histories as we think about that. The book end begins with this interesting expression in the New American Standard. Now it took place. And what unfolds is this beautiful, beautiful story. There are plots and subplots and just wonderful things about this. The main character, of course, we're going to begin with is Esther. That is her Persian name. Her Jewish name is Hadash, and she is a beautiful young Jewish girl. Mordecai is her cousin. Now, he was taken into captivity by the Babylonians. That was 70 years. Now we're in the time period of the Persians. So he's in his 70s, 80s, or even older than that. He raises Esther because her mom and dad had died. Then we're going to ring about the king here. The king of Persia, Ahasuerus, sometimes he's called Xerxes. He has a dominant role in this story. And then we're going to read about a man by the name of Haman, who is, you know, if this is a screenplay or if this was a cartoon we was watching, everybody would start booing right now. He is the bad guy in the story. He's promoted to number two in the kingdom and takes over lots of things about this. And then the story takes place in the capital of Persia, which is Susa. So let's begin. Let me just tell you the story, and then we'll have you read some things. Chapter 1, King Ahasuerus, he has territory from India to Ethiopia. Massive amount of territory. He's taken this over from the Babylonians. Huge amount of territory. He throws a party. Listen to this. His party lasts 180 days. Six months of the year is given to this party. It basically becomes a drunken feast. And what he does is he has his wife, the queen, Vastai, in chapter 1, to come out and display her beauty. Now that's all the text tells us. There's all kinds of ideas what that meant. 
A lot of scholars think that what it meant is you come out wear the crown and nothing else. You show off your birthday suit. Other people think that she's going to come out and be like a servant, which she was above that because she was the queen. For whatever reason, Vastai says, nope, not doing this. And that's an earthquake through the kingdom. Because first of all, you have a subject who is the queen telling the king, no. And if the queen can say no to the king, maybe everyone else can say no to the king. Secondly, you got a wife telling her husband, ain't happening. And maybe all the wives of Persia would rise up and say to their husbands, not doing it. And third of all, you have somebody who ought to be in the position, a woman in that culture had no say over a man, but she did. And so as chapter 1 ends, Queen Vasti is dethroned. She's taken away. She should be praised for whatever reason. This wasn't good. She recognized this. She was not Jewish. She was Persian. But she tells her husband, the king, I'm not doing this. And so she sacked. Chapter 2, we got to find a new queen. And so we've seen in reality shows and things like this, it's basically a beauty contest. All the young girls throughout all this territory are coming to the capital. And we're going to see which one the king chooses to be it. And so they're given months and months of preparation, a lot of beauty treatments, all kinds of stuff. And Esther wins. She becomes the queen. Now, she never tells him that she's Jewish. She keeps that to herself. As chapter 2 ends, her cousin Mordecai hears of an assassination plot against the king. So he tells Esther, the queen. The two assassins are caught and they're hung. And that story is put into the royal book. Chapter 3, Haman selfish, self-centered, wicked, evil, somehow is raised up to be number two in the kingdom. And I want you to notice, as we look at the book of Esther, chapter 3, verse 2. It says at the end of, of verse 1, that by the authority of the king, the Haman was promoted. All the servants, king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Why? Because he's Jewish. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego a few years before this? Here's this idol. Everyone's bowing down. Uh-uh. We don't bow down to that. We don't bow down to you. We don't bow down to the king. I bow down to one person. That's Jehovah. Well, that makes old Haman mad, spitting mad. And he finds out that Mordecai is Jewish. And all the Jews feel this way. So he tells the king, we need to do something with these Jews. And so when you look in verse 12 of chapter 3, they come up with this idea that we're going to destroy all the Jews. The king's scribes then summoned on the 13th day of the first month. It is written, just as Haman commanded the king, Satrap, the governors who were over each province, to his princes and each people according to the province. It says, written in the language, in the name of the king, sealed with the king's signet ring. Verse 13, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews. 
both young and old, men and women, and children. We are going to wipe out the Jewish people. Now, what was the cause of the? Were they causing trouble? It was one selfish person, Haman, who couldn't get what he wanted from Mordecai. Mordecai wouldn't bow down, and because of that, that goes on. So, chapter 4. Several things happened in chapter 4. Mordecai hears about this. There's a certain day coming up. Mark your calendars. On this day, all Jews die. And Mordecai tells the queen. And in chapter 4, probably one of the pivotal verses in the contest. We'll come back to this for the heart of our sermon. But in chapter 4, verse 14, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews, from another person. You and your father's house will perish. It doesn't matter if you're the queen. All Jews die. You're Jewish. You're going to die. Maybe God made you a queen so you could do something. Why me? That's what our lesson's all about. And so then chapter 5, two things happen real interesting in chapter 5. Haman, first, first of all, chapter 4 ends. That again, it's hard for us to put this in the culture here. Because of this passage here, Queen Esther feels like, i got to go do something. Now, in that culture, a wife doesn't just go up to the king and say, hey, king, i got to talk to you. If you don't have an appointment with the king, you could die. Look how verse 16 ends as, as we look at chapter 14. Chapter 4, verse 16. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, verse 16, Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days and three nights. I and my maidens will fast in the same way, and thus I will go to the king, which is not according to the law. If I perish, I perish. There is a chance... She could die. You don't just walk up there and say, hey, king, since I'm the queen, I got to tell you something. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Unless you have an appointment, you probably will die. And so this put added pressure to this. Now, in chapter 5, two things comes about. She goes to the king, chapter 5, verse 2, and he gives her a, a, an assembly. He allows her to speak to her. And what Queen Esther says is, I want to have a banquet. Just you and Haman and me. And oh, Haman's excited. I mean, you can just see how that strikes, strokes his ego. Me, the king, and the queen, they're going to probably elevate me more, give me all kinds of stuff. And so the banquet is arranged. Now, what happens here in chapter 5 is two things that take place. Haman still can't get over Mordecai. Even though there's a death Sentence on the Jews, he can't get Mordecai out of his mind. Every day he goes home, it's Mordecai won't bow down. Mordecai won't bow down. His family finally says, why don't you hang him? Because you're number two in the kingdom, you can hang this guy. So he says, I'll do that. I'll build the gallows, and tomorrow I'll hang him. Well, that night, the night before it's supposed to happen, the king can't sleep. And he tells his royal people to come in and read the books to him. Read the royal story to me. And in that, he finds out about Mordecai. 
and the assassination plot and how Mordecai discovered it and told the queen and he's alive today because of what Mordecai did. And he says, what have we done for Mordecai? He saved my life. Well, nothing. So he brings in Haman. I want you to get my horse, the king's horse. I want you to get my robes and put it on Mordecai. And I want you to parade him around town. Oh, that frost Haman. He wants to hang him. And now the king is making him look like he's the number, one, number two person. So then they have this banquet. King, Haman, and Esther. And it's at this banquet that Esther says, there's a decree signed. It's going to wipe out all the Jews, including me. And the king is angry. Who made up this? Even though the king signed it, who had come up with this? It was Haman. The king leaves in anger. He's thinking about what he wants to do. As he comes back in, he finds Haman hanging on the queen, begging for his life. He believes Haman's attacking the queen. So right then, right there, Haman's out. Haman is hung. And Haman dies. Now, because there was a law written by the king that all the Jews are going to die in this day, he can't stop that law. So he makes another law telling the Jews that I want you on this day, you're supposed to die to arm yourselves. I want you to defend yourselves. And what happens is they do. 500 of the Persian army is killed right there in the city of Susa itself. And the Jews live. And Mordecai is risen up to take Haman's place. Man, that's a great story. That's just a great story. If you haven't read the book of Esther, you need to do it because it's just fascinating. And one of the things we notice is, was it just chance or was it God's hand, number one, that allowed the queen to be it, Esther to become queen? All the girls in that massive province, she was chosen. Was that luck? Or maybe God has finger in that. And then the king was awake one night. Of all nights, he couldn't sleep. The night before Haman was, or Mordecai was supposed to be hung by Haman, that night before he can't sleep, the royal books are read to him, and he finds out what Mordecai did. Just luck? Coincidence? Or was that the fingers of God in this? And then Esther going before the king without an appointment. And how dangerous that was. And how he could have said, I don't have time for you. Off with your head. But God allowed that to take place. Did that just happen? Or was that the fingers of God? And when we look at chapter 4, verse 14, we see this wonderful concept to us again that who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as that. First of all, we need to understand it was not a good time. Death was in the air. Gallows were being built. The Jews were expected to bow down to Haman. There was already a death sentence for the Jews. It was a time of evil, a time of God's silence, a time of loneliness, and a time of faith. Foreign land, foreign gods, difficult culture. It was not a good time. And no one else was doing anything. Mordecai was limited because he was not royalty. No one else was rising up. No one else was going to save the Jews. And it was scary. And there were consequences, as they always were. And we come back to this expression. 
maybe God put me here for this very reason. Maybe God is counting on me to do something. Maybe God knows I can make a difference. And I want you to know this idea runs throughout our Bibles. For instance, when, when you think about this, think about that young servant girl in 2 Kings 5. Naaman is a captain of the Syrian army. He has leprosy. And the servant girl of his wife, who is Jewish, who is captive. Now she might say, well, you know what? The commander of the forces here who captured me has leprosy. Great. Let's sing ding dong, the witch is dead. No. What does she do? She tells Naaman's wife, there's a prophet back in Israel, and he can cure you. Why did she do that? Because maybe God put her there for that very reason. Maybe God was counting on her. Maybe God knew that she could make a difference. Remember the story of David and Goliath? Oh, we've heard that all our lives. David was not a soldier. He's a shepherd boy. His, his brothers were the soldiers. They were lined up against the, the nation of the Philistines. And there was a kind of standoff. David simply took lunch to his brothers. That's all he was doing that day. And he heard the mocking and the defilement of Goliath. And he said, I will fight him. How easy he could say, oh, I'm not a soldier. Y'all got a whole army here. That's your, it's not my job. Maybe God put me here for a reason. Maybe God's counting on me to do something. Maybe I can make a difference. In your New Testament, if you will, turn with me to the book of John. John chapter 1, then we'll go to John chapter 4. John chapter 1 takes us to the beginning of Jesus here on earth. And in John chapter 1, we read about Andrew. John 1 verse 40. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Why should I bring my brother to Jesus? It's not my job. Maybe God put me here for that very reason. Maybe God's counting on me to do something. Maybe God knows I can make a difference. Turn in your Bible now just a couple more pages. John chapter 4. Here we find the Samaritan woman. Now we lose something a little bit in the culture here. But Jesus, first of all, being Jewish, does not belong in Samaria. Jews did not go to Samaria. They went around Samaria. They'd go anywhere, but they wouldn't go through Samaria. If you have Waze or Google Maps and you were Jewish, it would not have a straight line through Samaria. It would have you going around because Jews don't go like the Samaritans. And Jesus is at this well at noon. And here is a woman. And women don't get their water at noon. They get the water early in the morning. By noon, you're cooking. By noon, you're washing. By noon, you're using your water. Here is a woman at noon getting her water. She's been married five times. Now she's just living with somebody. Read what it says in verse 28 and 29. So the woman left her water pot and went to the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? 
And then jump into verse 39. And from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. Who's going to listen to me because of my character? Maybe God put me here for that reason. Maybe God's counting on me to do something. Maybe God says I can make a difference. Now, let's talk about us. Let's begin, first of all, with our families. Some of us, top to bottom, inside out, everybody you know in your family is a Christian. That's awesome. That's a blessing. You need to be thankful for that. Some of us don't have that in our family. Some of us have every dog in town in our family. Some of us have family members who don't know Jesus. We might look around the congregation like this, so why can't I be in that family? Why can't I be in that? Why do I have the family I have? Why my family doesn't want to worship? My family is not interested. And there are certain things that come up, such as attitudes. And temperatures, not the outside temperature, but the temperature of hearts, temperature of dispositions, language, work ethic, honesty, and of course, all things Jesus. Well, maybe God put me in this family for this very reason. Maybe God is counting on me to do something in my family. Maybe God knows I can make a difference. Rather than wishing I was somewhere else, maybe God says, I want you here. Rather than saying, why can't I be back in Jerusalem? Why did God leave me in the capital of Persia? Why did God let me to become a queen? Maybe God says, you are here for this very reason. Think about this congregation. Sometimes we always think from top down. We got the preachers, we got the elders, we got the deacons. Turn your Bible, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, look at verse 12. 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. Show yourself example of those who believe. You may be a teenager among us. And maybe God put you in this church to help the rest of us have passion about Jesus. Maybe you're a single person in this congregation. And you might say, well, you know, I, I'm not in a position of doing anything. But maybe God has put you in here to show us how we need to serve one another. Maybe you're someone who's a single parent. And you think, well, I don't have a family like others. But maybe God has put you in here to show us how you sacrifice and give God first. Why am I in this congregation? Because of what you're all going to give me? Or is it that what I can give to you? Maybe God put you here for this very reason. Maybe God's counting on you to do something. Maybe God knows you can make a difference. Let's talk about school. Man, school can be bad. School can be bad. And you might think, well, you know, everybody in school is just crazy. Teachers are crazy. Everybody's crazy. Why am I here? Maybe God puts you there. To remind people of attitudes, to remind them of honesty, to remind them of language. Maybe God is counting on you to make a difference. Your place of work. The number one reason why people switch jobs today is not money, it's because of toxic work environment. All those people do is gossip, and all they do is shop on the computer. Well, maybe God put me here to make a difference. You ever thought about that? There's Esther. 
There's you. And maybe God's saying, you are the Esther where you are. You are the Esther at school. You are the Esther in this church. You are doing these things. Now, what usually happens is we say such things, well, I'm just busy right now, and I can't do what Esther was doing. Or you might say, it's just not my thing. You know, just, just talking to people is not my thing. Or I simply cannot do it. And what that all sounds like is the Moses syndrome. When God chose Moses to lead the nation, the first thing he said is, who am I that I should go? Why me? And the answer is because I chose you. He would say just a few verses later, what will I say to them? God will take care of that. Chapter 4, what if they do not believe or listen to me? And then, please, Lord, I have never been eloquent. Send somebody else. There is nobody else. Paul would say in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 20, as he talked about sending Timothy to the church at Philippi, for I have no one else of kindred spirit who will be generally concerned for your welfare. I have no one else. Who's going to do it if Esther's not going to do it? Who's going to do it if Timothy's not going to do it? Who's going to do it if you don't do it? And so what this tells us is we need to have faith like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We need to be able to stand where God stands. We need to have the courage to speak like Peter did. And when Peter was told you cannot say these things, Peter says, I'm going to say them. And we need to have the compassion of our Savior to reach other people to do the difference we can do. Maybe God has put me here for a reason. Maybe God is counting on me to do something. Maybe God knows I can make a difference. I love this passage in Acts 17 where he says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. Why is it you're alive in 2023? God chose that. You ever think about that? How come you're not alive back in the 1800s? Wasn't the plan of God. How come you weren't alive back when Jesus walked on this earth? Wasn't the plan of God. God has chosen the times and the habitation of when we live. And so, why me? Why me? And really the question should be, why not me? That's what came down to the book of Esther. Had Esther said, sorry, sorry cousin, sorry Mordecai, not my thing, she would have died. As with most of the Jews. But God had a plan. And God was working through her even though it's not specifically said. And I believe God has a plan for you. Even though it may not be specifically said, you may not specifically know it, but God has a plan. Why am I in this family? Why am I in this church? Why am I at this school? Why am I at this time period in my life? Why am I at this place of work? Maybe God says, you are the light of the world into this place. There's a group back in the 60s named Peter, Paul, and Mary. Some of you remember the songs such as Puff the Magic Dragon and songs such as Where Have All the Flowers Grown. They sang a song about baseball, and I love baseball. And this song has always been kind of special to me. It's called Plain Right Field. Let me read you the lyrics of the song. Saturday summers when I was a kid, 
we'd run to the schoolyard, and here's what we did. We'd pick out the captains, we'd choose up the teams. It was always a measure of my self-esteem. Because the fastest, the strongest, played shortstop and first. The last ones they picked were the worst. I never needed to ask. It was sealed. I just took up my place in right field. Playing right field, it's easy, you know. You can be awkward and you can be slow. That's why I'm here in right field watching the dandelions grow. Playing right field can be lonely and dull. Little leagues never have lefties that pull. I dream of the day they'd hit one my way. They never did, but still I would pray that I'd make a fantastic catch on the run and not lose the ball in the sun. And then I'd wake him from this long reverie and pray that the ball never came out to me here in right field. It's easy, you know. You can be awkward and you can be slow. That's why I'm in right field watching the dandelions grow. Often in the distance, the game's dragging on. There's strikes on the batter. Some runners are on. I don't know the inning. I've forgotten the score. The whole team is yelling. I don't know what for. Then suddenly, everyone's looking at me. My mind has been wondering, what could it be? They point to the sky, and I look up above, and a baseball falls into my glove. Here in right field, it's important, you know. you got to know how to catch. you got to know how to throw. That's why I'm here in right field just watching the dandelions grow. Why me? Why me? Because God says you can do it. I hope this lesson opens our eyes to some things that we can do. Hope it lets us see simple, common girls like Esther, how she changed the nation. People like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who opened the eyes of a king because they would not bow down. People like Daniel, who changed the idea of another king because he refused to stop praying. I'm going to keep praying. People like Peter, when they said it's against the law to preach, so what? I'm preaching. They stood. Our culture today wants you to be quiet. Our culture wants you to blend in. Our culture wants you not to be noticed. Our culture wants you to just go along with everyone else. Jesus says, you are the light. You are the salt. You will be noticed. You can make a difference. Why me? Why me? Because if not me, who else is going to do it? This morning, if we can help you in any way, it begins by being baptized. Why should I be baptized? Because Jesus died for your sins. Why should I live the life of purity, as Zach talked to us about? Because God died for me. And maybe in your life and all your busyness, all the things that's going on, the God of heaven says, I have arranged this and arranged this and arranged this because why me is you, and I'm counting on you. Your subject, name, wait, why don't you come? Let's just stand as we sing.